Well, I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible, your electronic Bible, the, the Bible in the pew in front of you, and join me over in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Uh, this morning we are going to start a series where we are going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians, verse by verse. Uh, Pastor Bruce did a wonderful job over the last uh, four weeks with the uh, missions conference, you know, uh, right there in the middle of it on the series on doctrines of demons. I hope you found that enlightening and challenging as we continue as a church to be called by God to be salt and light in our world. And this morning we're going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Follow along with me as I read the first nine verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May God bless the reading of his words. It was 1981. Uh, I was pastoring a very small church here in, in Akron, and a church in St. John's, Michigan, had contacted me through someone that I, I knew and asked if I would be willing to consider uh, moving there to become their pastor and uh, going there and at least talking with them through the position. So Barb and I arranged a time, and we went up there to spend a weekend in St. John's, Michigan. And we were there Saturday night, and then on Sunday morning, I preached in the church. Sunday afternoon, they thought it would be a good idea for Barb and I to go out with all the young people that were in the church, because at that point, we were young also. And so we went with the young people, and while we were with them Sunday afternoon, the young people said to me, has anyone told you what the problem is up here in our church? And I said, no, no one shared that with me yet. And they said, well, let's, let us tell you what happens. See, our church is filled with people who love to camp. And what happens every spring when the weather breaks, pretty much everybody in the church, all the leaders and most of the people, they spend every weekend 
out at the lake. And so basically from springtime until the end of October, the church is like a ghost town. There's nobody here. There's nobody to serve. Just nobody here at all. Well, that was an interesting fact to know about the church that nobody had shared with me to that point. So Sunday night, I preached in the church, and afterwards, there was a question and answer session with the leaders of the church and me. And for about two hours, they grilled me on all kinds of things, mainly theological things and my viewpoints on this and on that. And when they had run out of steam, uh, I asked, uh, can I ask a question? And they said, sure, you can ask us a question. I said, well, I have heard, I didn't throw the young people under the bus, I said, I have heard that this church, that the members are really big into camping, and that once the weather breaks in the spring, until maybe the middle or the end of October, there's nobody here. So my question is, if I were to come here as your pastor, how many of you as leaders can I count on being here regularly on Sunday morning through the spring and the summer and the fall? Just show me by a show of hands. Every leader in that room looked down at the floor. Nobody would make eye contact with me. There was not a single hand raised. And we're talking about the leaders of the church. I said, so then, how do you imagine that as a church, you're going to be able to move forward if you as leaders are not committed to the church? Everyone is still looking at the floor. Finally, one of the guys looked up and looked at me, and he said the following rather angrily. Young man, who do you think you are? Why are you coming up here? Why did you waste our money to bring you up here to candidate at our church if you're not interested in coming and being our pastor. Now, I was kind of taken, I'm still young at that point, I'm 30 years old, and uh, I, I looked at him and I said, sir, first of all, I've never agreed to come and be your pastor. This weekend was for a time for us to get to know one another and to possibly consider if this is a good fit. And I know that I'm young, but I also know if the leaders of this church are not committed to this church, it's probably never going to move forward. Well, you've probably guessed I never went there to be their pastor. <laughs> Matter of fact, Barb and I were so discouraged, uh, we were supposed to spend the night, we just packed up the car and drove home on Sunday night uh, after everything was over. The church had problems. You know, the reality is, every church has problems. 
Every church has issues that they are dealing with. Some more than others. And as we approach this church in Corinth, we're going to find that it has about every problem you can imagine. I've told people, if you want a primer on church problems, just read First and Second Corinthians, because about anything that you can think of that could be a problem in a church was present there in Corinth. I mean, this was a church that was racked with divisions and factions. People identified with different preachers in the church. It'd be like today saying, oh, I'm a butch. I like butches preaching. It's not too deep, but man, I really like Butch's preaching. And somebody else said, oh, I love Bruce's preaching. Did you hear that series on doctrines of demons and how detailed he was and how succinctly he put all of those uh, points that he made? And some of you would say, oh, but I'm of Eric, man. I really like Eric. You know, Eric, you know, he is so funny when he preaches. I don't know half of what he says, he speaks so fast, but boy, I really love Eric and, and the way that he puts something. And others are saying, oh, I really love Nathan, his heart for missions. And did you see that missions conference? What would it be like if we just had a missions conference every single Sunday? We could probably fire Butch and Bruce. We wouldn't need them around here anymore in order to do this. But in the church that was there, it was they were of the heavyweights. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Apollos. And some were saying who were very spiritual. Well, I'm just of Jesus. And I don't follow anybody but Jesus. So you've got a church that is divided. It's a church filled with immorality. There were members of the church that were regularly seeing prostitutes. There was a man in the church that was having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of the people being upset about it, they were patting themselves on the back. All oh, that they were so open and welcoming to people that someone could be living, a member of the church could be living like that and still, we want him to know that we love him. We don't want to offend him. We want him to be a part of the body here. Uh, these individuals were suing one another in court. Debates were raging on the subject of Christian liberty, the roles of men and of women. You had a significant number of the body of Christ who didn't even believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you wanted to put a punctuation point on it all, when they would gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they would have a love feast first, which we should probably call it an unlove feast, because they definitely did not show love to one another. But at this wonderful love feast, people were getting drunk before they took of the Lord's Supper. Who would want to pastor this church? You know, Craig Peters has shared with me that there's a church over in Indiana that call themselves the Corinthian Church. Now, you know what? 
There are a lot of bad names you can name a church. Uh, I'm not certain I'd want to go to a church that call, today that called themselves the Corinthian church. Maybe they're just trying to tell everybody, whatever your problems are, you're going to fit right in here. Because just like the church at Corinth, we have all of these issues. Now this church in Corinth was founded on the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. He worked there for about 18 months. The Corinthian church was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Later, the Apostle Paul would move on to the city of Ephesus where he would minister for three years, but it appears that during that time he would make visits over to the Corinthian church. We know that Paul wrote several letters to the church at Corinth. We know for sure that there were three letters that he wrote and probably a fourth letter that he wrote, only two of which are found in our Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Actually, 1st Corinthians would be the second letter that Paul had written to these believers. Corinth was a Roman colony that was built on Grecian soil. Its population was around 700,000 people. It was on Isthmus that was a land mass that was only four miles wide that connected central and south Greece. So it had ports on both sides. And so this was a place where trade would come through because it would save people who were shipping about a 200-mile journey if they would just stop there and go across this land mass. It was a wealthy city. There were opportunities there to buy exotic goods. It was the center of entertainment. It was a culture where, where sensual pleasures abounded. It was like a modern-day Las Vegas. That's what Corinth was like. Pleasure seekers would go there to take a holiday from morality. Corinth was, had a hill where the famed temple of Aphrodite, which boasted over a thousand female priestess who were also prostitutes, temple prostitutes, the way that they would worship would be by having sex with these prostitutes. Aphrodite is the, the Greek goddess of love. It would be the equivalent of the Roman goddess Venus. There was a statement in those days, an expression, Corinthian girls, that went throughout all of Rome. And that was not a compliment for a young lady to be called a Corinthian girl. It referred to someone who was very loose sexually. So it is in this city that God has planted a church. And as we come to this book, there's two natural divisions in it. In chapters 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with problems in the church. And then in chapters 7 through 16, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with questions that were sent to him by the Corinthian 
church, and he's going to answer them. There's going to be questions about marriage, questions about idolatry, questions about public worship, about spiritual gifts, questions about the resurrection, and questions about special offerings being taken in the church. So that's where we will be going over these next several months, dealing with problems and issues that I believe are very relevant in our culture today. So as we begin in the book, it opens with Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. We start with Paul. And if you're familiar with the New Testament very much at all, you know that Paul, who was also called Saul, was a persecutor of the church. He was a man who, before he was saved, was set out on destroying the church. Matter of fact, the book of Acts says of Paul that as for him, as Saul, he made havoc of the church. He thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. If you were living in that day, and if you were in the church and a survey was taken, and the question was asked, who is the least likely in all the world to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Saul would have been at the top of the list. Nobody would have imagined him putting faith in Christ. But my friends, I want you to know, no one is beyond the power of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the call of God. And one day as Saul was on his way to ensure that Christians were persecuted, God stopped him right in his tracks. And in a very miraculous and remarkable way, a light from heaven shines and Jesus speaks directly to Saul and calls him to follow him and calls him to be an apostle. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. Now let's talk about this word apostle because there's a lot of misunderstanding in our world today about what it means to be an apostle. I'm just going to slip down here and get my glasses so I can actually see my notes here this morning. <laughs> the message might be shorter if I didn't get my glasses. Some of you say, leave them down there. <laughs> but Paul is called to be an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. So there is a sense in which we can have apostles today. It's someone that is sent. People will argue today that missionaries that are sent out are apostles. And if you're using it in that way, that an apostle is a missionary or it's a person that is sent out then I have no disagreement with what you're saying. But we also have those who claim that they are apostles in the same way that the apostle Paul and Peter were apostles. And I would say to you in the scriptures, there's a very distinct role for those who were the apostles in the early church. The apostles were given the responsibility of making sure the foundation of the early church was laid. That was their role. 
And they did this through signs and miracles that God confirmed their messages before the word of God was complete. So I kind of refer to it as like Apostle Little A and Apostle Big A. Now that's, that's nowhere in the scriptures. So don't, don't read your Bible and say, well, does the apostle have a big A or a little A there? That's not. This is Butch's terminology, okay? All right. Apostle little A. Those who are sent out. Sent out by the church to do a specific work. Apostle big A. Those of the scriptures who were sent out by Christ to lay the foundation of the early church. Now in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples were all together before the day of Pentecost came, and they were choosing a replacement for Judas to be that 12th apostle, they were looking for someone who had witnessed the ministry of Christ from his baptism up until his ascension into heaven. That was the definition that one had, or the qualifications one had to meet in order to be considered an apostle. Paul is different. Paul is called by God. Jesus does appear directly to the apostle Paul and calls him to be an apostle. And I personally believe that there are hints throughout the scriptures that would show that Paul was not only called by a direct revelation by Jesus, but that Paul was also taught by Jesus in direct revelation. Paul, an apostle. Paul, one who is called. He's writing the book along with Sosthenes. Now you may ask, who is Sosthenes? Sosthenes is probably the person who is writing for Paul. Many times Paul, because I believe he had problems with his eyesight, Paul would dictate and someone would write for him, like a secretary, that would write his words out. Now, the people in Corinth would know Sosthenes, because Sosthenes had been in Corinth. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 18, you'll get the story there how the people in the city of Corinth were upset with the apostle Paul, and they wanted Paul beaten, and so they go to the proconsul, and they want Paul stopped and thrown out of the city. Now what has happened there is Crispus, who had been the head of the synagogue, had come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, and now has left the, the synagogue with the Apostle Paul. Guess who the next director of the synagogue would become? This man, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes, the people are so upset with him that the Roman proconsul will not stop Paul, that Sosthenes is the one who ends up getting beat up instead of Crispus and Paul. And somehow after that, through all these events, Sosthenes, and we're not told when or how in the Bible, also came to put his faith and trust in Jesus. So he's the one that Paul is, re is using to write this book to them. To the church, verse 2, to the church of God. The church, the called out group. The Greek word is ekklesia, out, to call out. That's what we are as a church. 
an assembly that comes together. In the Bible, the word ecclesia is sometimes used of just an assembly of people that come together. But it becomes the word whereby believers were identified. The church, a called out group, a group of believers who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have united together to carry out the functions of the word of God as a body of believers together. So when we think of the church, the church sometimes we call the universal church, The universal church is made up of all true believers in Jesus Christ. And then we have the local church, that manifestation of it in every location, the church. And I really believe that the universal church, the true biblical picture of it, the universal church is made up of local churches. See, the scriptures really do not identify loose-hanging Christians out there. Those who say, you know what, I put my faith and trust in Christ, and I want to be a part of the church, the universal church, but I don't want anything to do with the local church. And we have people that will tell us, oh, we love Christ, but we don't like the local church. Well, one of the reasons they don't like it is they can't find a perfect one. And friends, we'll never find a perfect church. We'll never find a church that has zero problems. We'll never find a church where every single member in the church is your best friend. We'll never find a local church that doesn't have things that they need to work through. But God has still called us to be a part of the church. And as we look at the church, I'm going to use my language this morning in a way, and I want you to think of the things that we're going to see true of the church are true of you as an individual believer and is true of the body jointly together in the local church. And this letter is directed to the church that is in Corinth. Now the first thing that I want you to see about the church is that it belongs to God. It's the church of God. The church in Corinth is God's church. Friends, Maranatha Bible Church is God's church. This is not Butch's church. It's not Bruce's church. It's not the church of the elders. The church belongs to God. And the fact that it belongs to God makes things so easy at times. Say, what do you mean it makes it so easy? It makes it so easy for our elders in making decisions. Because if the church belongs to God, then we're going to follow God. If the Bible says something, if God is clear on something, we're just going to follow what God has to say because, after all, it's not our church. It's God's church. And, dear friend, as a believer in Christ, we are reminded throughout the Scriptures that individually we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. He bought us. He paid for us. 
with his blood. And as believers, even individually, when it comes to our decisions, some decisions should be very easy. Because if God is clear on those subjects, that should settle the issue. Because we belong to him. The church, it belongs to God. Look down in verse 5 with me. Paul writes that in every way you were enriched in him. So in these verses, I want us to see the many different ways that God has enriched us. How he enriched the body in Corinth. How he has enriched Maranatha Bible Church. And how he has enriched each and every one of us as believers in him. So it begins, we're enriched. We have a new leader. Verse 2, to the church of God. Before we came to know Jesus, we were in the kingdom of darkness. Once we've known Jesus, we have been translated into the kingdom of light. We have a new owner, a new leader that we are following. Secondly, we have a new family. Look at what he says. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We get a new family in Jesus. We are called together with those in every place who call on the name of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we become part of the family of God. And Jesus has members of his family all over this world. Jesus has people that as you travel, you go places. Have you ever noticed, you know, if you've gone overseas, maybe on a mission trip or overseas and you've been with other Christians, how there's some people that just immediately you feel an affinity with? You, you, you've never known them, but now as you meet them, you just feel we have so much in common. What is that? It's the Spirit of God that's within each of us. It's the fact that we are all a part of the same family. And you know, as we gather here, there are people from all kinds of family experiences. Some have had very good families growing up. Some of you have come from horrendous families growing up. Some of you have, yeah, you're somewhere in the middle between that. You know, by, by the way, none of us had perfect parents. You recognize that? But also, parents, you didn't have perfect children either, did you? You know, it, it, it kind of goes uh, both ways. Scripturally speaking, in God's family, though, there is the perfect parent. God always got it right. God always did the right thing. So when there's a problem in the family, it's not with our parents. It's with, with us. 
but we have a family together and how encouraging that can be and should be. That's one of the reasons we need to gather together. That's one of the things that's breaking my heart right now that as a body of believers, we have about 20% of the people who were once regularly attending here on Sunday mornings, and you may be watching me this morning there on the live stream this morning. It's not the same staying home. You need to be together with the saints of God. This is our family together where we encourage one another. And what really bothers me, now I know that there's some of you who, who cannot come because of health concerns and that. I'm not speaking to you, but I'm talking to those of you. You're going to sporting games, you're riding on airplanes, you're traveling all over the United States. There's everywhere you're going except coming to be with the family of God on Sunday morning. Because it's so much more convenient. To just be in your pajamas on the couch and turn on the TV, then be together with God's people. But you know what? It may be more convenient for you, but it is not more spiritually healthy for you. And some of you know, and maybe you're just here this morning, and this is your periodic time to come, that you have showed up. And you'll go out and you'll blast all over Facebook how wonderful it is to be together with God's people. And then we'll see you in about another six months. Friends, that ought not to be. We are family together. And there are benefits to being family. So God has enriched us. And one of the ways he's enriched us is, is with this new family. Right? He's enriched us with a new identity. We are sanctified. Look it up in verse 2. That is in Corinth to those sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. It's a life. We look at sanctification typically as progressive. It's a lifelong process and that's true. But there's also a sense in which we are positionally stated by God to be set apart. And ultimately, we will be totally sanctified when we get to heaven and all sin is taken away from us. We, are, we have a new identity in that we've been set apart. Uh, we are given grace, and I've got to move quickly now, so hang on. I didn't think it'd take me this long to get to this point this morning, so let's go. Buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> Part of this enrichment is the grace of God. Look at it in verse 3. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God. The unmerited favor with God. Nothing that you can do to get it. God just gives it to you. That is his grace that we have. He's enriched us with his grace. He's enriched us with his peace. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God. Do you have peace in your life? Are you missing peace? If you're missing peace, it could be because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to come to him as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're a believer and you say, well, I have some peace. 
Well, is it because you're not following after God and you're not doing the things that you know he wants you to do? God gives peace to those who are following after him. He enriches us with peace. Verse 7, down to the church at Corinth, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. There's going to be a whole section on the gifts of God. And Paul writes to this church in Corinth that's struggling in so many ways. And he says, it's not because you're not gifted. Because every gift you have as a church. And may I say to you, very openly, Maranatha Bible Church, every gift we need as a church to fulfill what God has called us to do is present within this body. And when every member of this church uses the spiritual gift that God has given to them for the benefit of others, we as a body will function at peak efficiency. And we're not there yet. There are a lot of things we may do well, but there are still many things that we need to do in service of our Lord, and some of it is not happening because God has gifted people in our church who are not using the gifts that God has given to them. If you're not serving, you call us this week. We will put you to work. And we will strive to put you in a position where you use the gift that God has given to you. He's given gifts to the church. He sustained the church. In verse 8, He says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word that is sustained is a guarantee that God will keep us until the return of Jesus Christ. You know, I was reading this week about the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. It was built in 1937 at the cost of $77 million The bridge was built in two stages. The first half went very slowly. The second half went rapidly. In the first stage, no safety devices were used. Think about that. Working on the Golden Gate Bridge with no safety devices. As a result, 23 men fell to their deaths. However, in the second part of the project, a large net was used as a safety device precaution. And at least 10 men fell while they were working, but none of them died. Most of them were not injured at all. And the interesting fact was the work went 25% faster than on the first part. Why? Because of that safety net that was there. Dear Christian friend, you know who our safety net is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and he shed blood. He guarantees us that we are going to be presented before the Father, and notice, guiltless, without guilt. It means we will be blameless. And the word doesn't that that Paul uses here doesn't mean just that we will be acquitted, but it means that there is going to be the absence of a charge against us. When Satan goes to make a charge, Jesus steps in place and says, Father, it's all covered. It's covered through my blood. They're guiltless. They're guiltless. 
we are enriched as believers in Jesus Christ. You know, as I study and we go through this book, one of the things that I marvel at is I read of all the problems that are here in this church in Corinth is the fact that it's still God's church. He doesn't give up on it. In spite of all the problems we talked about, it's still his church. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're his child. You're his child. If you've truly believed in him, he doesn't give up on you. You may give up on yourself. God doesn't. See, God knows you were made out of dust. What do you expect out of dust? The only thing I expect is it's going to fall every week and it has to be moved around again. God knows that we're but dust. He doesn't give up on us. And as a church, God is seeking to pour out his blessings upon us as we honor and serve him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how clear your word is to us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we might seek after you, follow you. And that, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be all that you've called us to be. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.